Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Fridays uh, here at JM in the AM with a weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you again. We should mention that, uh, as is the case practically every Friday, every February, uh, Malcolm's going to be doing a tremendous amount of traveling over the next couple of weeks. So week by week, we will update everybody in terms of the weekly update schedule and when and where it will be taking place. So make sure to be tuned in here on a regular basis at JM in the AM. Malcolm, today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Someone pointed out to me yesterday, and you, you always talk about the importance of, uh, of words, of symbolism, etc. Someone pointed out to me that um, it is now illegal in Poland to refer to a concentration camp as a Polish concentration camp. And the only legal way to publicly state it is a Nazi concentration camp. And this, of course, for those who, uh, who, who feel it's important to highlight the culpability of the Polish people in, in World War II and of Nazi atrocities, uh, this is quite bothersome to them. What's your reaction when you hear about this, this, this symbolic change that has really become law in Poland? Yes, this has been a, a, an issue for many years uh, where the Poles say that, that well, these were not Polish, these were German camps. And I remember many times guides um, sort of obliterate the, the Polish role, and anybody who has even visited the camps knows that the people in the environs worked there, certainly knew what was going on there, that the that they, there was a lot of complicity, just as there were some uh, there were righteous Gentiles who who tried to help. I think it's you know it's a misguided thing. Confronting history is the only way to to address the atrocities that took place and the role of uh, of people. And there are those in Poland and officials who have been very forthright and and willing to do so. But um, this this eventually it, it became a law. And, and therefore, when people should not be surprised when they visit these sites and hear what what descriptions are offered and information is offered, uh, whether in official brochures and stuff or by guides, that uh, that this uh, the description is mandated. Uh, I, I did want to say that you know people we had a ruling in, in recently in a German court that an assault of a firebombing of the synagogue in 1914, in 2014, uh, was considered an anti-Israel act, not an anti-Semitic act. Right. By a court ruling, when three people of Palestinian origin, uh, right after Ramadan, when things are very excited, particularly excited, I should say, right. um, someone in the middle of the night threw firebombs into a synagogue. Right. And it was not ruled an anti-Semitic act, and that, of course, aroused uh, a reaction. But we see the dumbing down now of the standards. In both instances, it's it's uh, a mistake for the for the countries involved, for the people involved. I just saw that the um, the special committee that was set up in the year 2000 by the U.S. Holocaust Council to investigate and to catalog the death places. Uh, the places of uh, labor camps, the, the uh, concentration camps, of course, but uh, the, the military brothels, the other places that were established by uh, the Germans and Nazis in different countries. And they initially set out to uncover five places, 5,000 places. That was the estimate. A year later, by 2001, they had doubled that number. And then... Uh, 
a, a few years later, they said, well, there could be as many as 20,000 people mm-hmm. between 19, uh, places between 1933 and 1945. To date, this encyclopedia of the camps and ghettos has 42,500 sites that where the Nazis persecuted and killed and did all the terrible things that they, they did. And it's only the first two books of, of what is a seven-book series. So the number, ultimately, when it's finished in 2025, the target date, and each site had to be uh, uh, identified by multiple witnesses. It wasn't just that somebody could say, on well, this place, because you know, much of the evidence has been eradicated. Unless they could find official documents and multiple witnesses, they did not make it into this count. So you can think of how many more places were actually um, uh, used and, and places. So when they said they didn't know, when people claim innocence, as, uh, as sometimes in Poland they do, this belies it all, and it yes. tells the real story. And on this International Holocaust Day, it's a time people should remember and, and think about the lessons of this. And, yeah, excellent point. And obviously your point being that those are the only ones that are documented. God knows what happened beyond that. But look at the numbers just on the documented ones. It's insane. Uh, also, this report this week, we spent a little bit of time on it with the um, with the uh, office of the uh, Ministry of the Diaspora from Israel. It's the annual anti-Semitism report that they released after analyzing a whole bunch of stuff. And in France, uh, anti-Semitic violence is down, while in other places, incidents in Europe, other areas of Europe and the United States, it seems incidents are up. They attribute this to the crackdown of the government and police forces in France, which you could speak to that if you would. Is that, in fact, what's going on, that there's a a concerted effort among French authorities to uh, uh, really quell the anti-Semitic attacks? There is an effort. Uh, you also have the deployment of, you know, half their military inside the cities. You have uh, police and army stationed at Jewish institutions, so that does diminish it. The, um, but overall, I think that one would have to say that the number of incidents, and especially here, uh, as we document them more, uh, is certainly on the increase. There is no diminution overall, right. in, and both in the intensity of, of the incidents, the, the physical assaults, the verbal assaults, the what what is going on in the campuses. It may be, be that it reaches a peak point, uh, as, it, as it may have happened in France. There's also the question of reporting. Do people report the incidents? Right. And in most cases, the answer is no, they don't. And by and the we way, know in our own communities, people don't report when they are harassed or some incident takes place, especially somebody who has uh, physical symbols, you know, wearing outward symbols, clothing others that identify them uh, as Jewish. And it's not so only that. The, I, I, was, I was made aware last week, and, and maybe I should have realized this, and you, in fact, may have mentioned this at times, but it didn't hit me, that, that campus security... Uh, on campuses around the United States, essentially handle things internally. And and very often, apparently, very often on certain college campuses, they are encouraged, meaning the security forces, are encouraged not to get involved in certain types of episodes and incidents. And anti-Semitic ones are primary among them. We have multiple uh, cases, even in universities very here in New York area, where incidents were either not reported properly or were reported within the campus, but campuses don't want this information to get out because it dissuades Jewish students from coming. And they, of course, don't want to become identified as a racist or, or anti-Semitic or bigoted uh, campus. But 
Ask the students. That's the best uh, indicator. And we've had many cases where they, uh, where a student will have a, uh, appeal to a university official, others, and the response was very slow. And we try to follow up on all those cases. We, we provide lawyers. We do other things for, for students on campus, getting alumni, getting uh, faculty. But often the faculty are, are guilty of doing things in the classroom. Yeah. And, of course, no police, nobody goes in. It's academic freedom, certainly when it comes to being, quote, anti-Israel and, and trying to draw a line between anti-Israel, and there is a distinction between criticism of Israel and or a particular policy, and BDS and the other movements that we see on the campuses and uh, and in cities and in other places uh, where it's a much more visible manifestation of, of uh, more blatant manifestation of anti-Semitism. But we should be clear, you can criticize Israel not being anti-Semite, right can't deny the right of Israel to exist and the Jews to have the state and have the rights of everybody else. And on this International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the final frontier, I should say the most obvious uh, frontier now, is the Internet. It is unbelievable the number of, uh, of episodes that are and, and posts. I, I didn't even realize that there's an algorithm that actually keeps track of key, certain key words and certain key phrases that would be used uh, to express anti-Semitic feelings. The Internet and social media, I'm sure you agree, is one of those uh, areas, one of those frontiers where we don't know what to do. It's like the Wild West out there, and uh, and the level of anti-Semitic activity on the web is, uh, at this point, uh, beyond any control. Cyber warfare generally is the new frontier, and as you know, Israel is doing an amazing amount of... Uh of work to, to counter it, and there are firms, there are hundreds and hundreds of firms in Israel, they're cutting edge in the world on, on fighting cyber war generally, and uh, whether it's hacking or the use of, of the internet to spread hateful messages, there are tens of thousands of anti-Semitic you know, websites, because as soon as you close one or a hundred or a thousand, another hundred or a thousand will, will appear, because it, you know, it doesn't take much to start them, and keeping track of all of them at one time is not easy, but it is being done, and there, there is a concerted effort to try and address uh, web hatred and and the simplicity with which the messages can be communicated, not only within a country, but internationally, and it's not like you have a, a printing press where you publish anti-Semitic uh, literature. It's it's uh, you know just somebody gets on a on this out their iPhone or cell phone and, and starts tweeting out hateful messages. Yeah. So yes, this is a new frontier of hate. Do you ever think? And we'll move on. I know there's so much news to get to, but we got into this because it's Holocaust Remembrance Day. Do you sometimes think because you're a student of history and one who really yes, I do. <laughs> you're a student of history and one who really appreciates uh, you know looking back and learning lessons going forward. Could you imagine if this type of system was, in fact, in place in the 1930s and 40s, where, you know, at the touch of a button, something like, uh, you know, something could go viral, and where, uh, and where um, uh, laws and regulations uh, could be enforced with much greater ease than they were able to in the early part of the 20th century? It is, it, just to consider it is very scary. I, I do think about it. And uh, you saw that it took Hitler months to spread the big lie. Today, it takes seconds. It, it literally, you can reach a much larger audience, and you can spread the uh, the most extreme expression 
It doesn't take a propaganda machine to do it as it did then. And the real tragedy is that the big lie still works when it comes to Jews, when it comes to attacking Jews, Jewish interests, Israel. It's really regrettable, but you're absolutely right. One can only imagine what today a really good demagogue can do utilizing these new resources. Unbelievable. All right, America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world in the web at NahumSiegel.com, the NahumSiegel Network, and of course in our beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honeline's with us. As I mentioned, pay careful attention over the next few weeks. Malcolm is going to be doing his usual uh, lot of traveling in February, and we are going to try very hard to schedule the weekly update for each of the Fridays, but um, uh, just pay careful attention. We'll obviously update you in terms of our actual schedule as we uh, move along. All right, uh, so settlement building has begun, and I <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, laugh as I say that because, as we know, you know there have been times, uh, even when Donald Trump was not president of the United States, when, when settlements had been built and expanded in Israel. Uh, tell me about the timing of uh, Netanyahu's announcement uh, within, obviously, hours, one can say, of uh, last Friday's inauguration. And uh, is this the trend? Are we going to see many more announcements because of the comfort level he has with the new White House? Well, it's not settlements. It's housing that's being built. Is it not? Right. And, and one of the things that the media keeps doing is making it sound as if a new settlement is being put up. Most of this is within the blocks and the existing uh, territorial confinements of those blocks. Good point, right? Second, second much of this is previously announced uh, construction that, uh, w- was uh, was announced. Obviously, they do feel that uh, uh, the new administration will be more tolerant and and uh, of uh, any of these kinds of things, not can subject them to, to immediate condemnation, uh, as was uh, the case. But I think that there, you know, there are limits in that there will be eventually some understanding between the prime minister and the and the president between the two administrations about how to address it because you don't have a secretary of state you don't have other people looking at these issues yet um, so I, I don't think people should draw too many conclusions obviously the president has spoken out very forcefully and um, uh, we see it, the discussion on on other issues the fact that you have uh, somewhat of uh, the the discussion on the Jerusalem embassy and the announcement that this is only the first stage and they're only looking at it, which was, I think, to be expected. Uh, but the moving of the embassy, which is a matter of principle, it's not a it's not a gift. It's just correcting a historical wrong done against the the state of Israel. It doesn't take it's no territorial implication, and that's what I think I said last week that right. that we have to do it. We should not be intimidated from doing it, but it should be done just, you know, smart and meaning that there could be announcements that the, you know, the, the, the that the status of the holy sites will not be affected. King Abdullah is scheduled to come, I think, this this coming week, Monday or so, to to Washington, and he obviously is very concerning as is, you know, what sixty seventy percent Palestinian population. And we know that how quickly they can be roused, and he is the protector of the Harabayat, of the Temple Mount, uh, the status granted to him after the 67 war and, and is sustained since then. So, again, I think there are things that could be done, but but people should, should put it in the right context that this is not asking for a special favor or, or, or changing anything. 
there's a U.S. law that was enacted in 95, and we're seeing its implementation. Uh, would you agree that he'll follow Prime Minister Netanyahu's lead on this issue? If the Prime Minister encourages it, he'll tend more to encourage it. If the Prime Minister discourage, discourages it, the President will likely do that. I think that the, the discussion with the Prime Minister will be very critical on this issue. The Prime Minister has is clearly reflected in the discussion of their recent conversation earlier this week uh, that there are also other priorities for him and some that are of very critical security considerations like uh, what's going on in Syria, the buildup of Hezbollah, like Iran in, in so many ways, uh, um, what's happening with the PA, um, what's going on in Gaza with Hamas and the buildup of ISIS there and the confrontation between them. There are a lot of issues on the prime minister's uh, agenda. Uh, obviously, Jerusalem is central, and it's something that he and all, everybody feels very strongly about the recognition. Uh, so I think he would also argue that, uh, I mean, to me, the best way would have been if one day that everybody would have woken up and there was a sign on the yeah. consulate saying okay. office also of the ambassador of uh, the United States to Israel. Right. And people would have seen that, that we're not, you know, moving Jerusalem, we're not changing the boundaries, we're not putting up a wall, there's nothing else is, is changing by virtue of this. It's just the natural state of affairs, and and hopefully we can line up other countries. And I think the message the administration gives to certain parties, saying to them, "Listen, this is the way it's going to be. We're going to recognize it. We hope you'll come along." But at the very least, to to the others who are going to instigate problems or anticipate it, that they will be held to account for if they uh, stoke violence or violent reactions to it. Yeah, no question about that. Um, tell me about this two hundred eleven million dollar payment that President Obama uh, supposedly authorized to the PA before leaving office last Friday? Well, there was $227 million. $221 million of that was to, we went to the Palestinian Authority. There had been a hold uh, placed by Congressman Royce, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the House, and by Senator Granger from Texas, um, because of the amount of money that the PA is spending on incitement on paying the the, the um, pensions to terrorists who kill Jews, Israelis, to uh, to and to their family, to the families of those who engage in those activities, uh, you know that the the guy who did who rammed in and into those four uh, young soldiers uh, within a week, his wife was getting seven hundred sixty dollars a month of pension for life and uh, all sorts of other benefits. And there's a, over three hundred million dollars in their budget annually for this, and so. Members of Congress are finally saying, you know, it's enough, and they asked it to be a hold. It's not that this was everything. They got the Palestinian Authority got two hundred fifty million dollars from us for, uh, through other accounts and uh, previous payments, and then the president, uh, President Obama, literally as they were walking out the door, you know, I guess the lights are already off. He he made the, he released this money. What is interesting is that the State Department didn't pass it on; they held it. And so that money has not been given to the Palestinian Authority, and now the new the administration will have a, a say about doing it. The problem is that the optics were terrible to do this, you know, in, in such a, a sneaky way. And Secretary Kerry notified Congress, but as he was leaving, and and the Congress didn't even have a chance to react to it. Uh, now that money will be reviewed, and and it should be leveraged 
to to get an end to these very blatant violations by the Palestinian Authority that continue to stoke and in uh, violence and encourages people to engage in it because of the financial rewards. Um, so symbolically, uh, President Obama was obviously trying to make a point. I mean, more than just symbolically, but you get well, the reason I say symbolically is because you were probably sitting there Thursday and Friday as we were speaking, because when we spoke last Friday, it was hours before uh, President Obama's official end of his uh, term. Uh, you were probably sitting there wondering, is there something even more serious than a payment to the PA that's going to be coming in the next few hours? Am I right that that was a concern of well, yours? Well, we were always concerned what would be done in the last uh, uh, days. And I, I don't know if we know everything, like on the Iran deal, we don't know all the secret codicils. We find out more and more and more will come out. The president signed an awful lot of uh, decrees, um, so we'll have to find out. You know, and I'm sure the Trump administration is is reviewing all of them and trying to study them. Uh, we'll find out if anything else was done. But this was a, a, a the way it was done. It's not just the, the, what he did, but the way it was done. This was money that was allocated, right. and um, and it it just uh, the appearance and the and the message of it is is really terrible. Uh, but I, my point is, at noon last Friday. Yeah, of course. You, we you were, we, we you, did not know, and, and we no. still don't. I'm saying we still may not know all the things that were done. Oh, so it's, it's a noon last Friday. I, I would suggest that you you know took a sigh of relief that there wasn't anything more serious, but you're saying we subsequent to that could find out that, in fact, something more serious did occur. Well, I don't know if more serious, but, but, but we don't know all of the acts that were signed, what right. other um, measures may have been taken. So we have to wait and see. It's just it is unusual for for presidents on the way out to to engage in those kind of activities. It, it, pardons are usually done, and it's very regrettable that he did not include Pollard or Rubashkin in those uh, pardons when he gave so many to people who could pose dangers to society ultimately, and uh, did not to consider their cases. Uh, and I mentioned uh, either last week or the week before, maybe the new president would make that one of his first actions, but it doesn't look like the, he's heading in that direction, right? Uh, presidents don't do that as a first act. You know, people, it, it, I'm sure it'll be discussed, but it has to be done at the right time because, you know, first they got to find their feet. They got to, yeah, I know, the cabinet but he, is in place. But he, but he it's not a kind but, of thing you do right but away. But he doesn't seem to care what anybody thinks. <laughs> no, no, it's not because of what people think. It's because he's just, I'm sure overwhelmed by all the immediate things that have to be done in the right. considerations, you know, the appointments. They, got, they fill 4,000 jobs. It's, right. it's, uh, by the way. Many the deputies have not been appointed. These are very key positions. By the way, i got to ask you, because I, occasionally I, I turn to you for your general acumen when it comes to political science. Someone wrote this week, I think it was a Wall Street Journal piece. Someone wrote this week that, in fact, President Trump is um, not really that concerned about the voter fraud situation and how many people were at the inauguration. But if he continues to, to harp on those two issues, then he'll be, able to allow the, the, he'll be able to allow the media to concentrate on those things while he goes ahead and does other things that they're not concentrating on. You think there's anything to that theory? Very clever. I never heard it before. I think it's, uh, I think it's brilliant. It's really by the way, smart. by the way, if, it, if it's true that his reputation of knowing how to manipulate the media is off the charts, <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, we don't believe in conspiracies, but boy, that would be a good one. Um, uh, it's a very yes, that's a very intriguing idea. Yeah, I'm telling you. When I heard it, I said, "My God, he may be even smarter than we think," especially vis-a-vis the media. All right. Um, 
the, the trip, it sounds, every time the White House uh, references him, meaning Netanyahu, it sounds like he's coming earlier than March, like his trip is weeks away, like sometime in February. Yeah, it could be a Super Bowl time period uh, because he does have a trip to Australia scheduled for mid-February, which means that if he doesn't do it then, he would, could come in March when the APAC annual conference will be held also, so it would be killing two birds with one stone. I think he wanted to come earlier because of certainly the message it sends. It's the same reason why other leaders, why Miss May is coming, uh, Prime Minister of Britain, why King Abdullah is coming, why many others are, are trying to come. Uh, President Mexico was scheduled, but that's been canceled. Right. Um, that the that you know you send a message to other leaders and that that you're in and that you have a, a relationship. So that's why I think they would like to do it as soon as possible. Is the relationship between between President Trump and uh, Prime Minister May critical when it comes to his desire to really have a comprehensive plan to get ISIS? Is, is Great Britain going to play a big role in that? I wouldn't say that they play a big role. They play a role. They are part of the coalition forces. And But I, I think that there's a message to Europe. There's a message that he wants to build a relationship with Britain, I think, along the Reagan-Thatcher lines. I think that he, you know, that, that, that so there are other messages that come with it. And as a supporter of Brexit, he would want to be supportive of uh, of the Brits and of the prime minister who, who did support Brexit. And um, campaign Trump versus President Trump, when it comes to ISIS, uh, you and I had discussed uh, countless times when he was debating his opponents in the, in the Republican primary, and then, of course, when he was debating uh, Mrs. Clinton, we had pointed out that it sounded like there was no real plan uh, to defeat ISIS. And now, of course, he's talking about a comprehensive plan um, uh, to, to take real action. A any difference uh, in what he's uh, espousing now compared to then? Is there anything in place uh, that looks like a plan coming from the White House? Well, remember, it's, just, it's still his first week in office, and, right. uh, you know, they have to see, because it's a very fluid situation there, and there were talks that were supposed to be going on. I don't think they're going to go anywhere, but uh, I, I think that in the principle, I don't see any change of what he pronounces and, and the policies that he has enunciated. Um, implementation is always more difficult, you know, when you when you actually have to deal with boots on the ground, when you have to deal with uh, realities, and it's not just true regarding Syria or the international scene, it's true regarding everything. When you have to face all, all the consequences and think about things that you didn't necessarily consider before, but I think that the, there is a consistency from what I can see in, in what he's been, what he's doing and saying now to what he said before. Yeah, his executive orders have included you know, things related to Obamacare, uh, the environment, uh, immigration law, the wall, as we know. But I don't think he has uh, signed anything regarding repealing any part of the Iran deal to this point, correct? Right, and I don't know that repeal is the direction to go. I think we have a lot of other things. We have the um, Rubio introducing the renewal of the Non-Nuclear Sanctions Act. Right. We have the meaning more sanctions, but for their other violations, which are growing every day. I think that they, there are opportunities to to increase the banking uh, sanctions, which I believe in strongly, because I think it affects everything else. And we see trade delegations from France, and they said yesterday that Germany was company was interested in a $12 billion investment. A lot of those are just announcements and not stuff that comes to fruition. But, um, you know, there is a, a, a lot of activity going on. 
But the Iranian economy essentially is in a very poor shape the, and, and, and by every measure, and internally the unemployment, et cetera. So the sanctions and increasing the sanctions will, will have a very serious effect for those who are dismissive of, the, of it. And uh, repeal or just trying to, to um, uh, tear up the agreement may not be the best way to go right now. There are a lot of other steps that can be taken in the interim and then see over time how we either reshape it, renegotiate it, or, you know, ignore it. You mentioned King Abdullah's visit. Does Abbas make any attempt to uh, visit Washington or have some type of conversation with President Trump? I don't, I don't think so. I, I, nothing that I know of till now. But I'm not sure that uh, he, will, he wants to face the message that uh, President Trump will, would give him uh, and maybe finally force him to come to terms with reality and either start negotiating or step out. Or, you know, after he's already in this, what, now 12th year of a four-year term or 11th year of a four-year term. I think we've been and, saying 13, huh? Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I can't keep well, track. Time flies, so maybe. <laughs> but, <laughs> certainly does. But, but, you know, I think he, he's getting sobering messages, and, and maybe he'll start reading it right and, and uh, react in the right way or pay the price. Is there a an official Israeli policy regarding Syrian refugees? Israel has done such amazing things, and I went personally to visit up in the Golan in the middle of the night when and see Israelis, young Israeli soldiers going in, taking out Syrians who are wounded, especially children, but also adults. And, I mean, literally every night, thousands have been treated for free in Israeli hospitals, the burden carried by the government of Israel, the organizations that are trying to help among others that uh, have uh, provided some assistance in this. Um, but it is truly a remarkable story, hardly told. I saw one of the networks here finally did a story last week interviewing some of the Syrians saying, you know, we were taught to hate them, but we see that, that we were being lied to, that uh, that they can't disclose who they are, and if it gets out that they were treated in Israel when they get back, they could be killed. So um, the um, Israel's policy is to, to to engage in humanitarian assistance. They can't allow the border to be open and have a massive influx of people. They they are talking about taking a hundred orphan children and giving them respite and care. And then, uh, you know, certainly in the interim until the situation there settles down. Wow. Uh, we mentioned earlier the payment, of course, and the possibility of uh, the new president freezing it, meaning the payment to the PA. Sp- spoke about executive orders. Um, the Trump administration, according to the Max Fisher article, is preparing executive orders that would clear the way to drastically reduce the U.S. role in the U.N. and other international organizations, as well as begin a process to review and potentially abrogate certain forms of multilateral treaties. How serious an action do you think they'll take? I mean, obviously he made it known over the last few months what his feelings are toward the United Nations. But, I mean, is he talking about, you know, symbolic funding or we're talking about a real pushback or pullback of a U.S. role financially in the United Nations? Well, I think that that's exactly what, what we're looking at from what we know now. Again, it's early, but they're talking about uh, a 40 percent, I think, cut in are dues to all international organizations. He's talking about cutting off any agency, international body, that uh, accepts 
or grants full membership to the PA because, again, it's a violation of, of American law adopted by Congress. That's why we cut off the money to UNESCO. It wasn't the administration. It was Congress that passed the law, but the, the administration acted on it, uh, and we are not, uh, we don't pay any dues to, to UNESCO, but he's talking about uh, a much broader uh, move. He's also saying that we would um, punish companies or uh, that do business with countries that that uh, circumvent this Iran sanctions. Uh, so it's a very broad. Uh, there's broad coverage, and it could have multiple uh, manifestations in different ways, both economic and political, etc. Uh, but it seems to be serious, and you know they will they will listen because they're dependent on the America's dues. And I thought nobody said anything about pulling out of the UN, and nobody, as far as I know, and and. People, and I don't think are looking at that as a viable option, but to use the leverage we have to say that they, these agencies for once will be held to account. They've been getting away with murder for decades. Unbelievable. Hit them in the pocketbook, huh? The only way to really make an impact. That certainly gets their attention. Uh, finally, this terrible, terrible bus accident in Israel uh, that killed two uh, near Malelavona, I'm assuming that it, it, it was not at all a terrorist attack. It had nothing to do with terrorism. It was simply a bus accident, correct? As far as uh, we know in the reports that I've seen till the middle of last night, there, there was no accusation of uh, terrorism. We've seen vehicular terrorism, yeah. unfortunately, and even, even this past week, another incident where there was an attempted ramming that, thank God, did not hurt anybody, but not in this case. For that, I guess. But of course, what I said, a terrible episode uh, that affected um, uh, Israel uh, yesterday. Um, uh, next week, where were, are you allowed to reveal your destination this year? I mean, you know, some years you go on these missions, you're allowed to tell us where you are. Sometimes you're not. Are these one of these? Is this one of these destinations that we're allowed to know about, Mr. Homelock? Well, next weekend, I'm going to be speaking at the Limud Conference in London ah. and at the Board of Deputies in London and other venues there, meetings there, uh, but there's this international gathering of all the, from across Europe, and uh, so I'll be speaking there. Then to Israel, then to Morocco, hmm. then back to Israel, and other points uh, around, so we'll keep you updated as uh, as it moves along, God willing, we'll have the opportunity to talk, but it's not always in my hands when, uh, when oh, we're moving I, around. Yeah, that I get. All right, well, two things, uh, let them know in London that you need the noon hour free, if I'm, oh no, I'm not calculating correctly. I'm like, yeah, I think it's, it's a, I think it's the noon hour. Anyway. No, one, it's five hours oh, different. Oh, it's a one o'clock hour, whatever. Sometime, sometime yeah. around then. And obviously, uh, next a week from Sunday, you'll have to watch the kosher halftime show from London. In most cases, you'd be watching it here, but I guess you'll have to access it from your hotel in London. Yeah, as much as I would be watching it here, I'll be watching it there. <laughs> hey, wait a second. You're supposed to tell the world that you love watching the Coaster Halftime Show. Are you kidding me? No, the Halftime Show, of course, that I watch. I just don't watch everything in between. <laughs> All right, Malcolm, a good trip. Have a wonderful job. There he is, Malcolm Holdline, is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.